Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Oh, hi, it's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It's Cindy Howes. I am the host of the podcast, so nice to have you here today. We have Dietrich Strauss on the pod talking about his new album. Before we get to that, let's talk about ways we can stay in touch. Okay, first of all, there's always social media. You can follow us at Basic Folk Pod. Or you can sign up for our newsletter at basicfolk.com. One email once a month. We get to stay in touch. Everybody loves it. Uh, You can also make a contribution. We are a listener-supported podcast. If you give at least $60 or $5 a month for the year, you'll get access to our bonus episodes backstage, which come out monthly. This month, we're actually hanging out with Dietrich Strauss backstage, and Lizzie Noe will be there as well, talking about music at a wedding. We'll drop a preview of that in the feed coming up in a few days as well. Okay, I think we have taken care of everything, so let's get into it. Dietrich Strauss, raised in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, was a classically trained trumpet player growing up, but the allure of songwriting and performing his own music pulled him into the Americana world. He found his way to the Boston area and into the super collaborative and supportive community that you find there. On his new album, You and I Must Be Out of My Mind, Dietrich found himself more in control of the creative process thanks to spending years cultivating his skills at Great North Sound in Parsons Field, Maine. Under the mentorship of producer Sam Kassir, he became empowered in his craft by offering up his services as a session player, engineer, and studio handyman. The record took several years to record, but due to his experiences with Sam, he was able to see the way that bands make decisions in the studio and how a record takes shape, which all culminates on his latest record. Dietrich's known in the Boston area for sitting in on sessions and live shows with people like Rose Cousins, Chris Delmhorst, and Session Americana. He's built a home and community there. Now Dietrich is in the process of moving his base to London, which sounds challenging to do at any time, never mind during a global pandemic. He talks about how it's been a strange move and how the pandemic has impacted his relationship with touring. Full disclosure, Dietrich is a close pal of mine and one of my favorite hangs. When I spend time with Dietrich, I feel like a little kid, like anything is possible. The day is ours. His music gives me that feeling too. Hope you enjoy getting to know Dietrich and his perfect songs. We'll take a listen to a track from his new album, and then we'll get to our conversation with Dietrich Strauss on Basic Folk. If you don't want to go don't want to stay If you don't want to move on Always If you got someone you love If you got something to say If you don't want to have to Explain Hey, Dietrich, how's it going? 
Really well, yeah. How are you? Great. I'm excited to talk to you, uh, as per usual. Always excited to talk to you. So you grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I think you're actually the person that taught me how to say Lancaster properly. Keep the kiss in Lancaster. Is that a real thing? Yeah. Yeah, you keep, <laughs> you keep the kiss in Lancaster. Um, so did you have any siblings or are you an only child? I have a sister. Uh, she's she's just a couple of years older than me, but she is several years older than me in schooling. She's really smart. She skipped a bunch of grades. She's totally kick-ass. Wow. Yeah. So what does she do? She's a labor lawyer for the AFL-CIO. Washington. She lives in Washington and she, you know, fights on the side of the unions, uh, doing a lot of election election law. Did she? Did you guys both play music growing up, or just you? Yeah, she played music. She played bassoon and saxophone and uh, trumpet, and she sings. She sang in the master chorale in D.C. for a long time, and but not a professional musician. But played a lot of music growing up. All those instruments you named are like smarty instruments. Totally, yeah. Bassoon. <laughs> Bassoon. It's for high IQ required yep. for that. <laughs> music in your house growing up, like how your parents related to music and how were they as musical role models for you in terms of like not just like playing music, but also in terms of like listening to music and, and being a fan of music? Yeah, my, my mom... Uh, she was a piano major in college, and so she played piano. My dad played trumpet in the uh, Penn State marching band, and he played... Um, that think, is serious. I think he played... It, it is serious. It's a big It's a big marching band. I think he played in a funk band. Um, this was the 70s, so who didn't, you know? And right. <laughs> he, um, my dad... Uh, because he played trumpet and I played trumpet, we sort of we would play uh, trumpet duets, and then we all would kind of play Christmas carols and things around around um, you know July Fourth. No, just around Christmas, <laughs> and uh, that was kind of the scene. And then we had this dog Jefferson who loved to howl along with trumpets. So anytime we'd we'd play trumpets together. Jefferson would come running from the other room and just start howling, you know? So <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah, it was a pretty musical house. Let's talk more about like how they, how they were in terms of like listeners of music, you know, what they were bringing in and, you know, what you learned from them in terms of like how to appreciate music. Yeah, my, my mom, uh, she loved choral music. So she'd, she'd listen to... Um, you know, sort of requiems and masses and things like that, um, sung by sort of big famous choirs, big recordings. Um, a lot of them, yeah, m all of that stuff is recorded live. Um, so, you know, when she'd turn it up really loud on the speakers, it really felt like you were, you know, sitting in, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral or something. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and my dad, he was the one that sort of started to play... Uh, you know, more songwriter music. Uh, I remember as a kid, he every Friday he would clean the house and turn on music. And, and so he'd put on the Beach Boys and he had a Simon and Garfunkel record. And, uh, and then uh, we would drive back from, we'd go to baseball games in the summertime and driving back, he'd put on a Johnny Cash album or something. And so that was kind of my first uh, exposure to songs so kind of between the sort of the epicness of the choral music and then you know these <laughs> the songwriter music uh it's sort of kind of what they brought in listening wise but I don't remember sitting down you know as a family or, or sitting down you know with the stereo in front of us and just listening to music um it was pretty mm -hmm. social or or in the car. I mean, we listen to a lot of music. You do something. I feel like I've seen you do this a couple of times with the trumpet. Oh, yeah. You, you play trumpet, but you, you said you play trumpet in, in church. 
And from my experience in church, like if there's a trumpet player playing, like nobody knows about it. All of a sudden there's a trumpet and oh my God, it's beautiful. And the angels are everywhere. So (laughs) I feel like I've seen you do something like that a couple of times. Playing at... um... Like at Passim, playing, playing from the all back of, a sudden, of the room, right? All of a sudden, you'll we'll hear a trumpet, and then it's like, "What? Where are the angels? Do you? Is that something that you consciously are like? This is, you know, embedded in me from from growing up and playing at church. You know, that's really funny. I've never thought of it that way, but actually, I think that more comes from an impulse to not. The trumpet tends to be loud, and at folk clubs. Nobody needs the trumpet right in their face. <laughs> and so so standing in the back of the room and playing, it also sort of feeds my uh, social anxiety or like my avoidance of, of uh, feeling uncomfortable or awkward in, you know, a performance setting of just like showing up to play one song on the trumpet and standing in front of people. You know, it's easier to just pull the trumpet out of your case and play from the back of the room but it is funny that you say that because growing up, I started to realize that, oh, if I play music and I play the trumpet and, uh, you know, sing in the choir, I can hang out in the back of the church up in the choir loft with all the, you know, with the choir and, and you know, they usually have the most fun during church services. <laughs> like what goes on up there? I've always wondered. Oh, Cindy, I don't know if I can divulge those <laughs> secrets. You You have to be a you know, part of the club to know. (laughs) Man. I had a question about when you figured out that music was the thing for you, like the thing that you were going to reach for and the thing that moved you, how did you, how did you know to reach for music instead of something else? I think when I was in elementary school and middle school, I fell in love with playing the trumpet. And I loved practicing and I loved playing in the band and I loved, you know, how I felt. You know, I I sort of went through two phases of this because I went to school for trumpet performance to Syracuse for one semester and then I dropped out. I just realized I didn't want to be a professional trumpet player. So I transferred to another school and I wanted to learn other things. I got a degree in politics and and I thought maybe I would do something with that. And then, you know, that's when I really... Like a political science degree? Political, yeah. Well, it was more like a law and uh, history and politics in a disciplinary degree. Where did you get your uh, political degree? At Oberlin College. Oh, you went to Oberlin for not music? Yeah. That's weird. Super weird, I know. <laughs> Did you play music while you were there? Not really. I had kind of stopped playing out. I played guitar still at my house, and I really fell in love with playing the guitar. And it wasn't until my senior year seeing... Um, I went to the folk festival in the square, and Anais Mitchell was playing. And I saw her play and I was like, who is this? This is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like you can do this with music. And that's kind of when I felt like I wanted to write songs and 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 sing and do that. So after you saw Anais play, which I get it, she's incredible. I wonder how soon after that you decided to, you know, come to Boston to make music. I came to Boston actually in this totally random way. My childhood best friend was going to BU Law School, and my college girlfriend at the time was maybe going to get a job in Boston. You know, he was moving here. Dan was moving here for law school and had the van packed, and we had extra space. On a whim, decided to move here because it meant maybe I would get to see my college girlfriend in Boston. And I also didn't really have any other plans after college. And I moved into an apartment in Jamaica Plain next to Doyle's. I saw I had studied abroad in South Africa. Across the street from English High School, there was a 
uh, like an office park and there was a sign up that said South Africa Development Fund. And I thought, this is great. Like, I'm just going to go knock on the door and see if they need any help. You know, I'd love to sort of reconnect with, you know, stuff in South Africa. And I knocked on the door and there was a guy working there who uh, was named Chris Blagg. And he told me that they didn't really have enough funds to hire anyone else. They didn't really have enough work for an intern. And then we got to talking and I told him I was a musician. And it turned out he was a freelance writer for uh, the Phoenix or the Dig or something. He wrote down a list. This was like the third day I was in Boston. (laughs) And he like wrote down a list of places and people to go see. And it was, you know, Passim, Cantab, The Lizard, go see Tim Guerin, go see Dennis Brennan. It was was amazing. Wow, what a stroke of luck for you. It was amazing. It was great. Yeah. I I still run into Chris around town. He's booking shows up in Rockport at the Shailen Lou. And it's just, it's bizarre how, you know, randomly knocking on a door just (laughs) sort of opened up music when I wasn't really looking for it. How did you first feel about being able to express yourself through songwriting? I think at the very beginning, I didn't, I didn't think that as hard about it as I, as I do now. And at the time, all I thought about was, I don't really want to play covers. I found it hard to find covers that I really wanted to play and stand on a stage and and sing for people. I sort of was left with that feeling of this isn't completely what I what I feel like saying. I thought the solution then was to try to write songs of my own that I mm-hmm. would so wholeheartedly want to want to stand in front of people and and sing. And that's been a sort of guiding principle in my process has been to imagine as I'm writing a song to imagine singing it for people and how it would feel to sing it. I I come and go in sort of how much it moves me to sing them for people. Um, And it comes and goes in waves. But these songs are little friends that I've developed relationships with. (laughs) Cute. Yeah. Like that. You have played Sideman in a bunch of different bands. We actually met for the first time. I feel like I knew you, I knew your name for like a couple of months or maybe like a year or two before I actually met you, but you were with Laura Cortese and the dance cards. Um, do you remember that? We went to like a super fancy sushi restaurant. Yeah. And I, I had like a that. gift card and I was like, everybody's allowed to spend $20. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and you've been a session musician for Rose Cousins, Chris Delmhorst, Session Americana. What do you like about playing with other people in that capacity and how does it impact your musicality what i love most about being a session musician playing working on other people's songs or music uh, in a studio setting uh, is how focused the mission is or or how focused the mission can be there's a lot that goes on in order to set up shows and, and promote shows and get people to come to them. And, and live music, you have to put a lot of work in to get to play the music. With the session work, if somebody asks you to be a part of their session, you schedule it, and then you can right away start to listen to demos and think about sounds and think about sort of the creative process of it. And then once you get to the studio, it's all about creation and process and and sort of all of the the distractions in the world can kind of be put to one side. When I'm in the studio, I feel like I'm spending every moment. It's, it's really well spent. And, and my time is sort of all focused towards a creative end. That's overall what I love most about being a session musician and and why I'd love to continue doing it and do more of it specifically with those three artists that you mentioned they're all uh 
great friends. And through the years, having worked on so much music together, there's a comfort and an ease that comes with uh, years of, of trusting each other with our own music. They've all played uh, on my records and, and sang with me on shows. And, and so there's sort of that camaraderie and trust that gets built over the years. And that just is, I think, fertile soil for, you know, mm. creation and creativity. When it comes to touring and playing live shows, there's this great line in your bio. It says you first gained glimpses of the world outside classical music and academics, which is where uh, you basically started um, in in music, a very formative experience. You figured out what the world looked like outside of that while you were playing with bands in bars and biker clubs. So what was that transition like for you going from like a classical music hall or a classical music situation to a biker bar? Well, the way that came about was I would play trumpet a lot in my dad's church. And the vicar at the church, kind of like the intern, he uh, becoming a pastor was his second career. And before... Before that, he was um, he worked as a musician, gigging musician. Mark Kopp was his name. And Mark then studied to become a pastor, went to seminary, and continued to play gigs with his band. But he asked if I wanted to come along and play trumpet in his rock and roll band. And they would play biker bars and yacht clubs and all kinds of functions around Lancaster County and, and the area. And this is when I was, you know, 16 or something. And so that was kind of my first experience wow. um, seeing music played in settings like that and, and having people dance. and it, Yeah, thinking about like how the audience acts at like a classical concert versus like a, like a rock concert. It's very different. Yeah. Having grown up going to church, there's a way... Music is both social and personal in the church setting where, you know, there's contemplative moments where the organ is playing or, or there's a performer singing a piece, a solo, and people sort of sit with their thoughts and it's a very personal moment. And then there are these social moments where everybody's singing hymns together and those sort of exist together you know, within the context of a church mm -hmm. service. But then in the classical setting, you know, you would show up and put your, you know, nice iron shirt on and get mm. your trumpet all ready and, and sit there and and everybody would be seated and quiet and the conductor would start and you'd play and nobody would do anything until the very end. That was what you had to do in the in that setting. And And it was great to sort of take the trumpet and go to a place where, you know, you'd play a song and then people would come up to you right away and start, you know, asking you to play other songs or ask you to play different songs or they would start dancing or it was just much more interactive. And mm -hmm. having that experience opened a door in my mind to see the way in which music fits into people's lives in so many different ways. Yeah. Uh, a couple questions about like pandemic stuff in terms of like you um, have toured extensively before the pandemic and then the pandemic happened and then no one was touring and now people are starting to play out again for t a touring musician for you like how has the pandemic impacted your thoughts your feelings your relationship to the act of like going out on tour well since since things have or, or shows have started to happen again and the possibility of touring is, is now on the table. Um, I haven't, I haven't really toured and done a, done a proper, you know, even two week tour. I've done long weekends spaced out over a couple of weeks and that model feels like it fits a little bit better with my life now. Um, mm -hmm. post post pandemic. Um, I don't know if I, really will go back to touring where I've got my 
month or two months blocked off and and I'm trying to fill every date. Part of that is because I think there's such a greater risk with touring now because it could possibly go away at any second again mm -hmm. if somebody in the band gets COVID or if there's you have to plan these tours so far in advance, you just don't know if there's going to be another wave. You put all of that energy and time in and there's increased risk, but the payoff isn't any much better than it used to be. Right. And so it's harder to imagine doing it that same exact way as before. Finding shows that I really want to do because it's a collab, maybe it feels a little bit more collaborative, where mm -hmm. collaborative with the venue, with the other bands that are on the bill. So that way, at least you have this feeling like you're sharing increased risk and, and that mm -hmm. if it all gets taken away again that you don't feel like you're just out on an island and that all has been lost you've worked on something together planning it and you've developed developed it so that way it's gonna happen it's not just gonna get canceled and never happen you have been in the process of relocating from boston to london um and you I feel like, did you start that process during the pandemic? Because I remember you'd tell me, you were like, okay, I'm in London. I have to stay in London because I can't leave. <laughs> yeah, I was in London when the lockdown happened. Whoops. Um, uh, whoops, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well live here, I guess. And then... That's, that's so funny because that like happens to me all the time where like, you get stuck I'll in be... London when the pan when no, pandemics happen. Yeah, when global <laughs> pandemics happen, I'm like, well, always. I guess I oh, live not here. again. Yeah, this happened Damn last it. week. <laughs> <laughs> I was in London. The lockdown happened. All the flights got, yeah, no more, no more flying for a while. So I stayed for three months. Since then, I've been back a lot, and I've slowly been making my way to maybe a more established existence in in the uk and mm -hmm. and now it's about half time half half here in boston where i am now and half in the mm -hmm. uk i find it really hard in general to make a move like from one city to another so what was that like for you to make that move in general and also to make that move to, during such like a weird time well it's still happening so I, I still feel like I'm in the middle of of the move mm. it's a muscle that I haven't had to exercise in a long time I mean some people I know that you've moved several times and you know I was just my sister has, has been moving had to move a couple of times in the last several years and it's just a muscle I haven't used I've lived in Boston for 12 years and and I've moved apartments, but I've stayed rooted in, in the Boston music scene and have always had, mm -hmm. you know, the the benefit of building and continuing to build those relationships and friendships and and feel it sort of deepen over the years. In the process of it now, what I'm sort of being humbled by is just how tough it is to, you know, come into a new place and uh not know anybody not know where your favorite pizza place is yet you know not mm -hmm. like all the little simple things I'm, I'm really trying to to appreciate these these feelings of yeah. of how hard it is and not get too down on the, the whole process and just sort of or realize get blackout that it's... drunk like i did <laughs> <laughs> whoops whoops <laughs> yeah don't ignore your feelings folks yeah moving has a way of shining a light on where you have have been in a different way when i am over in the uk it focuses my attention on you know when i am back and, and looking forward to when I am back in Boston, what are the things I want to do? What do I want to accomplish when I'm here? And, you know, it doesn't have this whatever forever feeling anymore. And I really am enjoying that part of the process of hmm. sort of that reflection and then focus and then reflection and focus. 
The new album, You and I Must Be Out of My Mind, first of all, before we get into this album, is there like, do you call this album like by a shorter name when you refer to it? No, I don't. Um, I If you have any suggestions, I'd love okay. them. <laughs> well, I was trying to do like a, an abbreviation of like Y-A-I-M-B-O-O-M-M, but it, you know doesn't quite work didn't work yeah yeah let's call it time out of mind <laughs> oh yeah no that's good that's a great that's title a good one. yeah <laughs> <laughs> the album came out in april of 2022 and the last quote-unquote studio record you released was 2016 how cruel that hunger binds and offline we have talked about how the creation of the new album you and I must be out of my mind was a culmination of a process that came out of being disillusioned with how like stressful that was making that 2016 record. Would you mind expanding like what was stressful about it and how did you aim to not put yourself through that again? I guess maybe I'd, I'd want to clarify that the process of making the record wasn't of making the 2016 record. It wasn't the the creative process of making that record that was stressful as much mm-hmm. as it was sort of everything that comes after the making of <laughs> like the record. Like this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the the making of the, the making of the record um was a really fun, collaborative, exciting experience in the studio. I think what happens with releasing music is that once the album is made there's all this other stuff that happens and then it changes how you feel about the creation of the record. That process was really hard, um, I think, because there's a lot of money that goes into making a record and a lot of expense to it. It can start to feel like all of that expense is to pay for the experience of making the record. When the experience of making the record is condensed into a one week period, then it can feel, yeah, like a very expensive week. And Most expensive vacay ever. Yeah. <laughs> a, an expensive vacation where you're working from nine in the morning until midnight yes. every day. And, <laughs> and it, yeah, it's not inclusive. And it's not inclusive. Not all inclusive. Yeah. There's no pool. No pool. Although there, there's a pond at the studio, so there's good swimming. But gross. Did you say gross? Yeah. <laughs> You're not a pond swimmer? Uh, there's like a, too many plants. Turtles. And frogs. Yeah. So the process, I think that what I set out to do kind of ever since then was make sure that the making of this next record felt like it was years in the making. So that way I didn't have that feeling of the expensive, super expensive week at the dude ranch, you know? Mm-hmm. And... This album really started in 2017 when I was able to start working as an assistant at Sam Kassir's studio. Sam just, I, I went up there and would help, you know, fix the ceiling or, you know, patch something on the wall or do handyman work. And then Sam started to show me how to record music at the studio. I started assisting him on sessions and got to watch his production process. I just got very comfortable in the studio in a Mm. way that I hadn't been. And so when it came time to make the record, I felt like I had already done two years or or more of work leading up to it. It didn't have that, Mm. like, get dropped into the middle of it feeling. Right. What is Sam like as a a teacher? Uh, And what do you you like about his, like... um his teaching style? Sam's great teacher, and sort of a weird answer to that question is that Sam teaches sort of really big idea, had taught me some really big ideas about recording, which is mostly that if it sounds good, it is good. You can learn to use the gear that's in the studio. The reason to learn to use the gear in the studio is so you can use it in ways that you want to use it. So, and that's, that's its function. That's the only way to learn to use it. So that way you can use the instrument as an, or the use the studio as an instrument in the creation of music. 
Yeah. Um, that was something that I observed with him recording a lot of different bands, assisting on different bands that, you know, there were things to set up a very specific and certain way, uh, decisions that you needed to make in the moment and then ways that you could set up so you could make the decision later and deciding what those things were going to be and what you wanted to decide now versus later is all part of the process and that recording mm -hmm. is process art. And I love putting off decisions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love putting off decisions as well. And working in the studio taught me to appreciate not putting them off. <laughs> uh, and it's made me better at making decisions and sticking with them. So we're talking about uh, Sam Kassir's studio, which is called Great North Sound in Parsonsfield, Maine. Um, and you were talking about how you were working as an engineer, session musician, handyman. Um, can we talk about the actual um, spot? Like, it's a pretty special place. Lots of great records have been recorded there, from Josh Ritter to Lake Street Dive, Laura Cortese. Can you describe the scene up there? Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful old farmhouse in the sort of main. There's a farmhouse style where the barns, each building is connected to the other, and they, they're sort of built side by side. And I think my understanding is that when it gets really cold and snowy, uh, it's a way to be able to pass from the house, you know, over to maybe where, like far out on the other side to the barn where maybe you have your, your chickens um, and you can go collect your eggs and then come back through, back into the house so you don't have to collect Ooh, are snow they on your boots and everything. I think that's my understanding of how these New England farmhouses, mm -hmm. why they're laid out that way. So there's a big barn on one end that's right now it's being renovated. Then there's a mud room, uh, laundry room, and a kitchen. And then the main house where the control room and living room is. And then next to that is a connected is a, another big barn where the live room is. Mm -hmm. And so the live room has organs and pianos and vibraphone and marimba and all kinds of fun instruments. Each room in the house is wired so you can set up microphones and record. The attic is sort of an, a shell of a room with a bunch of stuff in storage, but big open space for drums or upright bass. Or I've been there on a session with harp up in the attic and you kind of can play with the space on a session and put different configurations of people in different rooms and yeah, but it's creaky floors and all kinds of stuff. It's fun. I read about um, the different recording spaces in the studio uh, where you were talking um, about like how some of the instruments were up in the attic and for this record, recording this record, some in the kitchen, some in the isolation room. So basically all that to say is that you had three musicians recording together, you being one of them, but you can't see each other when you're playing the parts. So like you might be reacting in real time to people that you can't see playing parts that might be like kind of new to you, kind of surprising. What was that experience like? Um, and how do you prefer that setup or not prefer that setup to having like a visual on the other players? That process was something that kind of came about was an idea that came about from Sam and I spending a lot of time working on records at Great North working on a you know when I would assist him and then we would drive back to Boston and we'd sort of talk about the process of what we had just worked on and through a series of conversations we kind of came to this idea that we would set up as much as we possibly could in the studio you utilize all of the rooms and we would have three three musicians shane leonard was the other other musician brian joseph and shane uh who are out in eau claire wisconsin they drove out uh together and brian long drive and, long drive brian engineered mm -hmm. the the session and shane sam and i played and so the idea was that we would get a basic take of a track and then if we felt happy with the form and the general feeling uh, we wouldn't think too hard about it we would then immediately switch instruments 
Shane would move from a keyboard instrument to the drums or Sam would go from one keyboard to a different keyboard. I could go from guitar to bass or just, we wouldn't think about it. We would immediately switch and all overdub on that take together at the same time. And so we very quickly would develop a pretty rich track and not spend too much time thinking about or focusing, having everybody's focus in on, you know, one person's playing or one person's part. Mm-hmm. And not being able to see each other meant that you went into your room with your instrument and you put your headphones on and you were, you know, playing that second part. You were playing along. It felt like you were immediately playing along with a record that you had never heard before, which at least for me, made me much more focused on listening to what was going on, which I think made me play less, which I think contributed to sort of a spacious Hmm. feeling on the record, even though there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of Mm -hmm. instruments, there still feels like there's space. I'm going to send you those TikTok videos of those guys playing along with dogs howling. Yeah. For sure. (laughs) It sounds... Sounds just sounds like similar. sounds just like this. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, the song "Out of Mind." Let me try to get this right. So it seems like that song centers around how, through songwriting, there's a chance that you might write from like a rose-colored perspective about events, not necessarily like lies or false, but just like different things that actually happen to make the song more alluring, which would then kind of like muck up your memory of what actually happened. Um, You said, my experience of the world and the people around me is far more complex and I don't want to live inside myself in such a way, which this is such an interesting byproduct of being an artist. And I'm wondering like, what conclusions you've come up with in order to like maintain truth in your life or even like what kind of discussions you've had with other artists on this particular topic? This is something that I think about a lot and I don't really have any conclusions or there's, there's nothing that I do that I feel like protects me from this sort of conundrum that I see with being a writer and writing music and, and writing songs when you're writing a song and if you have sort of the listener and the audience in mind as you know which i often do you know i just know that i'm making decisions about what goes in the song based on what i imagine the listener and the audience might be interested in in addition to all of the things that i want to express um or the feelings that i have that i want to put into the song i just want to be really honest with myself about what the song is and the process of writing a song in its entirety, how it shapes the final product. It's not that there's a way to stop yourself from misremembering things or, or writing one version of a story into a song, you know, but I think being aware of that as having a force on your life, I think it's really good for artists to be honest with themselves about that. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that stops me from writing certain songs or changes the songs that I write, I'm completely fine and I, I accept that. You know, that's just the way that I, I want to do it um, because yeah. it, it doesn't feel healthy to me personally to not be honest about that. I was at a friend of mine's house one time and her husband is like very emotionally intelligent. He's a social worker at the VA. And, you know, my friend and I were just like talking about some kind of problem that I had going on. And he's and he pipes in. He's like, well, you know, it's all about the story that you're telling yourself. (laughs) So it seems like this is a battle for like every human being. But it's so interesting to think about that an artist actually has like a record of the story that they're telling themselves Mm. and how that like ripples out into the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are memories that I put into songs where I change the details and it may be as simple as changing the color of something or, you know, because 
it's just works better in a song for something to be right, right, blue right. than green. And it seems like a simple, you know, that's a simple version of what I'm talking about, but it is still part of what, what happens of changing your, changing your story and changing your memory actively. This makes me think about the beginning of our conversation. We were talking about um, when you first got into songwriting because you're like playing cover songs and some of the song resonates with you and another part of the song doesn't resonate with you. So I'm wondering like when you do come across those little changes or those details that you've um, changed in your songs, if like when you're performing them, if you're like, oh, I'm saying this is blue, but it was really green. <laughs> uh. <laughs> when I get to the point where the song is finished and I'm and I'm performing it, I think what I try to do is take a global picture of what's happening and try mm -hmm. to live inside that in order to be able to deliver the song convincingly as a performer, which is maybe a separate process than as the writer. I think at this point, I've also thought about this so much that I've accepted that I can say blue and what I know is green. Mm-hmm. It's up to the audience. It's up to the person hearing the song to determine what it means to them. It it kind of doesn't yeah. matter what it means to me. Yeah, anymore. yeah. Oh, that's so true. What an interesting topic. I could go on and on about yeah. that. So the new album was released on Jeffrey Foucault's Blue Blade Records imprint, and you have a pretty awesome friendship with Jeff and his wife, Chris Delmhorst. Can you talk about that and how you ended up working with Jeffrey on this release, and how has their mentorship helped you navigate the dark and hard spots as a musician? Yeah, Chris... Chris and Jeff are, are great friends, and beyond beyond that, they, as you said, they they are mentors, and and I think they're sort of one phase, or they're you know a couple of phases ahead of me in terms of career and years, and so I I sort of look to them and and what they've built over time with their catalog and the kinds of records they make and sort of the dedication to the craft of writing songs and making records and and just delivering great shit all the time <laughs> you know like that is a, a total inspiration over the years we've developed this friendship and have crossed paths at home here in boston and then in massachusetts but also overseas and jeff and chris tour the uk and the eu quite a lot or they have in the past and i, I think they will again once i sort of set my sights on living half time in the UK Jeff and I just you know started talking and it became clear that what he has developed and and worked on in the UK for so long he he offered very graciously to put my record out on his imprint as a way to just kind of you know give it some some extra help in those places and it is really great because not just do people check out my record because they trust Jeff because of his catalog and his experience and his years of, of being over there. But it feels good to be on a team and not just, you know, floating out on an island yeah. by yourself, you know? Um, and, and it, it allows me to kind of maintain this uh, connection and story back to Boston and back mm -hmm. to New England that, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm from Pennsylvania originally having lived here in Boston for 12 years, now spending time in the UK, sometimes I don't know what to say to the question, where are you from? You know, should I say Pennsylvania? Should I say Massachusetts? And this connection with Jeff now sort of officially on the record, it makes me feel this ownership of my New Englandness when I'm over in the UK. Awesome. Love that. Yeah. Um, Okay, before I let you go, let's do the lightning round. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 <clears throat> Dietrich Strauss, 
What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Bridge Over Troubled Water. Hmm. Wait, no, I, I'm pretty sure it was like one of those, um, the songs you had to learn in school, like, you know. Hot Cross Buns. Hot Cross Buns. I'm sure, I think it was that. But Bridge Over Troubled Water is really just a variation on Hot Cross Buns, so. Yes. Yeah. I, that's what I've always said. Yeah. Willis or Dottie? Oh, I can't believe you're going to make me choose. <laughs> well, I'm going to reserve that until the day that Willis swallows Dottie whole and she just lives inside of him. Uh, <laughs> and they live as one. And then I will choose well, them both. <laughs> wow. That was morbid, but good answer. Um, first celebrity crush. <laughs> the... um. I can't remember her name, the doctor in Jurassic Park. I think I read that she was Marianne Williams' college roommate. Laura Dern. That's right, Laura Dern. She she was Marianne Williamson's roommate. I heard that too. Yeah, she's awesome. Good one. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Flying or Invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? There's, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a hike that I did once up to a cirque in just north of Yellowstone. It's not in Yellowstone, but it's out in Montana. That might be, there's a lake at the top and camped up there. It might be the most beautiful place. You can wow. hike then to the peak and look down into Yellowstone. Um, wow. That might be the most beautiful place I visited, but it would take a while to find it. Okay, I won't try to find it. We'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> uh, look at me telling you what to do right. <laughs> with your put show notes. Put a link notes. in the show notes to this hike I took one time in yeah. 2003. <laughs> Somewhere I found without an iPhone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thanks, Dietrich. That's the end of the interview. Thanks, Cindy. That was fun. Yeah, it was like 75% fun for you. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can also search for Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at basicfolk.com. All right. Thanks for checking out the pod and hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Bye.